This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey guys, thanks so much for joining me again. I'm excited to talk to director Jason Hare about his series that this week became the most in-demand documentary in the world. And I've been waiting for episodes like a kid on Christmas. So The Last Dance is a brilliant deep dive into Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls dynasty, and the final championship season of 1997-98. But it goes way beyond that season, giving background and incredible never-before-seen footage. It paints a picture of the eras and the cultural zeitgeist that was going on, great use of music and old-school hip-hop. We see the tensions between management and players and get insights into figures like legendary Phil Jackson, whose unique coaching style incorporated Eastern philosophy, for example. Mostly, it's a bounty of new interviews, with Michael Jordan himself, of course, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Magic Johnson, Presidents Obama and Clinton, experts, management, and more. You guys not allowed? No, I'm just kidding. What time is it? My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. Jordan is the most talented player in the NBA by far. The show of the 90s, the team of the 90s. How you feeling? Whenever they speak Michael Jordan, they should speak Scotty Pippen. We created an image that people want to live up to. I think that's all you can hope for. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So if I ask um, five people, they'll give me five different answers. But what's your personal favorite Jordan moment, a brilliant play on the court? I have a a soft spot in my heart for his 63-point game because I was there with my dad. Um, I was nine years old, and I was was, uh, sitting up in the corner way, way behind the Celtics bench. But um, my father brought me to that, and that's a memory that I'll, I'll never forget. Your movie dives into several of the great players in so many interesting ways. I was wondering if you could give me a comparison of what you learned of the mental approach, Jordan, Rodman, and Pippen. Um, it's a good question because they're, 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 well, Jordan and Pippen became more similar, but, you know, Michael imbues the work ethic of everybody that he comes across, including me. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly his, his teammates, you know, Scott, when Scotty came there, I think that he was happy just to be in the league. Um, he certainly has a drive to get him. He had a drive to get him to the NBA, but he and Horace Grant came in together and they were really immature, you know, missing practice, going out every night and just not having the kind of work ethic that Michael thought that they needed. So Michael really had to start cracking the whip after they lost those first couple of playoff series. Uh, Michael had no tolerance for any sort of laziness or irresponsibility anymore. So Scotty became, Scotty's work ethic became very similar to Michael's. Dennis on the surface um, would seem undisciplined and and as a bit of a wild child, but the truth is that he's really an introvert and that um, he is just as hard a worker 
uh, away from the court uh, as any of those guys. In fact, you know, after the game, Michael and Scotty and everybody else would leave to go home. Dennis would stay to lift weights. He really was, he was, if, if he wasn't at home watching movies with Carmen Electra, 50% of the time he was in the gym or at a game 45% of the time. The other 5% is, is the interesting part when he would go off to Vegas. His work ethic, you know, it, it, it might be the most impressive because it's the least expected. You see Michael and you see that he's always polished and spiffed up and, and he's, he's got his act together. Dennis, you think that you'd be lucky to get him to practice. You talk to any teammate of his uh, from any team and, and, and they will tell you that when, when the, the ball was tipped and then the first whistle was blown, he was the guy who was there who was going to deliver every single time. And he's a Hall of Fame talent. Um, at one point, B.J. Armstrong, I think he says something to the effect of that Michael Jordan never, he never played basketball. He just knew how to win the game. He was like playing a different game from everyone else. Is that your take? Yeah, B.J. said that that was, that was a certain uh, turning point in Michael's career. And it was, it was after they had beat, uh, after they had beat um, the Pistons, overcame them, and, and, and then won their first title. From there on out, it was Michael had figured out how to win. He is on a different plane when he's seeing when he's seeing the game and seeing his opponents. He knows when to strike. He knows when he can can conserve energy. He knows when he can exert energy and, and put the game away. So, yeah, that was my take and, and continues to be my take. And, and the the staggering uh, notion is that he he only improved that skill of his until ninety seven ninety eight. So you could argue that peak Michael Jordan was, was not when he was at the peak of his physical powers, but when he was at the peak of his mental powers, which was 97. And he still was better than, you know, 99% of the, the league physically. But at that point, he had figured out the ins and outs, and he had truly become, it's almost like a martial art. He had figured out the game of basketball and could defeat anyone who came in his path. But going back a bit, Detroit enforced something called the Jordan Rules, which basically was just stop him. If he takes flight, stop him. Um, how did he react to that? With a lot of frustration, but with a lot of discipline. Um, he, he knows that if you let the, the opponent, especially if they're a bully, if you let them see that they're getting to you, um, then they've won. And they know where where your soft spots are, and where your weak spots are, and, and they can keep on pushing those weak spots and and um, and attack you there. I, I wish I had the same discipline when I was a kid growing up with two older brothers, because I remember my parents used to say the same thing to me: is don't let them know that they're bugging you. And I was never good at that. I'm still not good at that. But Michael knew that inherently that that he he couldn't uh, he couldn't let them see him uh, upset and. So that was his weakness, do you think, his Achilles heel? Uh, I, I don't. I, I think that that was his strength, is that he never let them get the best of him in that way. You could argue that it was Scotty's weakness or it was, it was uh, Horace's weakness, is that they would, they would clearly be upset and they would whine to the ref. And he said, don't even let them know that, that you're hurt. That's, that's the way that they're going to beat you. So it, it took him a couple of years to imbue the rest of the team with that mentality. But when they did, they were unstoppable. Our biggest challenge is us. I am cursed with this mentality of competitiveness. Competition was an addiction. Every day was a battle. Dennis, get up here. Boom. They don't hear it. See Dennis for 48 hours. No matter what we did, it seemed like it was a story. Scotty was being selfish. When the trust is broken, it's sort of shocking. I never hated Scotty. Six championships in eight years. We were the greatest team ever. What time is that? I'm going to ridicule you until you get on the same level with me. It was his team. My mentality was to go out and win at any cost. So, of course, MJ became this incredible cultural icon. I mean, there's someone who says that before him, 
sneakers weren't even fashion. He was basically the most famous person in the world for a while. But how did you see that fame changed him? Uh, it definitely did. Um, I, I think that his image had been crafted so well. He, he had been raised so well and his image had been so carefully crafted that um, I think he thought it was possible that he could be construed as a perfect person that he could uh, you know, upkeep this perfect lifestyle. And we'll start to see in episodes five and six, five is kind of the rise to the peak of his fame. And then six examines the cost and the toll that that fame can take. And, and it's impossible, none of us are perfect, and it's impossible to, to exude perfection at all times because inevitably, especially in our culture, if you are seen as perfect, then people are going to try and poke holes. They're going to try and rip you down from that pedestal. It's what we do. It, it, we build, we build up our heroes and then we try and tear them down because it's no fun to just watch them up there after a while. And when Michael had won a first championship and then a second and then a third, it became almost sport for, for journalists in the States especially to try and poke holes in that. So if he wants to go play blackjack with his dad in Atlantic City and take a ride for two hours uh, the night before a game against the Knicks, it's perfectly legal to do so. And he certainly has earned the right to do that with his performance on the court. But um, the press didn't see it that way, and they want to make a story when, when sometimes the story is not there. So I think it frustrated him to the point where he finally, after the death of his dad, and he was really grieving that, he finally had no more time for it, and, and he had to step away from the game for a while. So the, the, his fame took an enormous toll on him. Um, of course, with someone like that, a cultural icon of epic proportions, there's some barriers. You said at one point when you were making the movie that, you're interested in really humanizing the person. Um, what did you find interviewing him one-on-one? -on -one? Well, I found it really refreshing to see that, you know, if you put probably you and certainly me, if you could put an image of our mom and you heard her voice, you would immediately be taken back to that place in your childhood, especially if she's reading a letter that you've written before you've become a worldwide famous uh, icon. Um, so it was really refreshing to see him choke up when he saw his mom reading that letter and to see the reaction that any of us would have. I mean, Michael cares about his family deeply, uh, just like the rest of us do. And there's so many things that when, when you sit down and you have a relaxed conversation with him, you realize that there's a lot more that we have in common with, with some of our sports heroes than, than not. Um, they certainly live different lives than us, but they laugh at the same kind of jokes and, and, and they, have, uh, they have affection for the same loved ones and friends and family that we do. And they care largely about the same things. Michael wanted to provide for his family and, and, and you know, put, <laughs> put food on the table and send his kids to good schools and have his kids have happy lives. That's what he wanted as a dad and as a husband and as a, as a friend um, to all of his, his, his close associates. So it was just refreshing to sit there and talk to him about the fears that he had, about the, the hopes that he had in his career, about you know, what made him tick. Um, and as you said before, my, my goal with all of these things, especially the bigger the star, the more I want to humanize them and de-iconize them and, and, and make them into more of a human being than a bronze statue. One of the episodes is dedicated to Kobe. Um, what did they mean to each other? Uh, a lot. And, and it, it, it's, it was not evident to the public, uh, even me, who had spoken to both of them about each other, um, really until Michael's speech at the memorial service, but, but we interviewed Kobe last July for about a half hour, and he could not have been more effusive in his praise of Michael, which was not surprising because I know that it's a hero of his. But what I didn't know was, was that early on in his career, Michael had given him his number and said, call me whenever you want. And Kobe said that he had really helped him through some tough times. And his guidance is the reason why Kobe had five rings. And he said, without Michael Jordan, there is no Kobe Bryant. 
and he doesn't mean just because it was a poster on his wall as a kid. He means that he that he guided him through a lot of his career on and off the court. He was always there uh, to lend an ear and lend some advice. So to hear Michael confirm that, uh, and to hear Kobe in his interview with us say that Michael's like his big brother, and then to hear Michael say "rest in peace, little brother," it just brought it full circle. So I think that people are going to realize that that. It wasn't just for show, and it didn't just make a good headline. It actually was legitimate. These guys were very close to each other. The kindred spirits, they're so similar in so many ways. If you close your eyes and listen to both of their voices, their cadences, their tones, the timbre of their voice, the way they walk, the way they play, the way they compete, they were so similar. So um, I really hope that people enjoy that scene. It's right off the top of episode five next week. I really hope people enjoy that as much as we enjoy putting it together. Someone who was very important to... Michael was coach Phil Jackson. Tell me a little bit how, how he's changed his game. Well, Phil is the one who instituted the triangle. And, and when Doug Collins was there, um, the offense was built around Michael. And it was Michael go out and score as many points as you can and um, try to win the game for us in the fourth quarter. You know, Michael averaged 37 points a game in 1986-87, which is astounding. And he could have probably scored 50 if he wasn't trying to, to, to pass and get his teammates involved. But a team like the Pistons can just focus on you, and if they're good enough defensively and you haven't fostered the talents of those teammates around you, you're not going to win because you can't score 100 points a game, and the other team can score 100 points, so you're not going to win. And, and Phil recognized that, and it's a credit to Michael that he said, okay, you know what, I have, I'm, I'm miles more gifted than anybody else in this league offensively, but I am going to subjugate that talent for the rest of the team and I'm going to figure out a way that I can help this team uh, develop in the way that they need to in order to play as a unit instead of just four guys who are standing around watching Michael. So uh, Michael himself said that the three, most, the three most important figures in forming who he became and who he is are James Jordan, his dad, Dean Smith, and Phil Jackson. I, I want to ask you just about Rodman because I thought it was such a fascinating angle. What really came out in your story is that he really wants or wanted a father figure. Dennis never had a father. Uh, his, his father is alive still, I believe. His name is Philander. Um, he has anywhere from 15 to 25 kids, depending on who you ask. And, um, you know, he, he, he attempted to come into Dennis's life later on in his life when Dennis had already reached a, a level of fame and, and acclaim. Um, but you're absolutely right, is that a father figure, or maybe more specifically, um, an authoritarian figure, an authoritative figure, someone to keep him in line. Because I don't think that Michael was, was, a, was necessarily paternal to him, but he certainly revered Michael because Michael kept him on the straight and narrow. And Dennis knows that he has the proclivity to go off and do wild things, but he needs that structure. So Chuck Daly was that first figure for him uh, in Detroit. And then when they broke up that dynasty, he was very hurt by that because he didn't understand the business of basketball. He just knew that the family was being broken up and that money superseded the love that he had for those guys. So that's where he kind of went off the deep end and became the Dennis Robin that we know today. Uh, and then he had trouble in, in San Antonio, didn't really connect with the coaching staff and his teammates there. And then he found Phil Jackson, in, or they found him more specifically in, in Chicago. And Phil became a great mentor to him and a great friend. And then he had Michael as, as the guy who was going to tolerate him but was not going to put up with any sort of behavior that was going to endanger the success of the team. And Dennis responds to that. Dennis wants to be wanted. He wants to be valued. He wants to be loved. And you're not going to be any more loved by Michael Jordan than if you help him win. Yeah. Yeah. Phil Jackson, he really brought these guys to another level in their sort of mental strength, would you say? Yeah. He, you know, De uh, Phil grew up um, in a very, very strict religious household. Didn't see his first movie until he was 14 or 15 years old. Never danced 
until he was like 18 when he was a freshman in college. It was like the movie Footloose. And he, he grew up in a Pentecostal, really, really strict religious. And he said in the film that, that he was taught from a very early age that he was to prepare himself for the rapture, that, that God was coming back to earth and was going to judge him and either send him to hell or send him to heaven. And he lived with that burden every day of his life. So he, he wanted to do the opposite. Uh, he wanted to explore as many different cultures and religions and thoughts as he could. Uh, and he, to this day, calls himself a seeker. He's not just one religion. He, he tries to learn as much as he can about everybody. So it, it gives him this preternatural talent to sit there in a locker room and be able to relate to a Scottie Pippen, who is a second banana, relate to a, a Michael, who is, is there's more burden on his shoulders than anybody, relate to a Dennis Rodman, who's got all kinds of issues that he brings there, and then relate to the guys to, to all the way down to the 12th man to keep that guy focused, to keep that guy feeling like he's involved and he's a part of this thing. Because it would be very easy for anyone who's outside that starting five on the Bulls to think, well, what am I here for? Because they don't need me. He made everybody feel involved. And that's to get, to get Michael Jordan to buy in to doing yoga and, and meditation in a circle, you bet your ass that the, the other 11 guys are going to sit there and fall in line if they see Michael doing it. And Phil was able to do that. Um, you also interviewed a former Chicago resident uh, um, in the documentary, you wrote the title of Pre that's the way you wrote the title of President Barack Obama, and you got a lot of good feedback and funny memes on it. Tell me some of those. The one that, I love the one that said Jesus Christ, former Nazareth resident, um, <laughs> because certainly President Obama is deified by a lot of us, and uh, myself included. I, I, I just I'm an enormous admirer of his, and it was a thrill to meet him. Even more of a thrill to just sit there and talk basketball with him. He, he's a lot of things to a lot of people, but he's a huge hoops junkie. So he came up, you know, I was pretty adamant at the outset of this thing that, that I didn't want to have famous people just for the, the sake of their being famous. Um, you know, Michael certainly is, is as or more famous than anybody on the planet. And if he calls, people are going to answer that phone and they're going to say, yeah, I'll be a part of this. But anyone can tell you that he was a spectacular performer. Anyone can tell you that the Bulls were a sight to see in, in the 90s. So for having a president say that, it didn't mean much to me, as much of a thrill as it is to sit down with a former president. It doesn't really serve the story that well. But if we do need someone to give a first person account of what it was like to be there during Michael's rise to power in Chicago in the mid 80s, and how exciting it was to watch him every night and what he did, and what it meant for the community, and yeah. Then what better person than Barack Obama? That if, if you need a former Chicago resident, he's at the top of the list. So <laughs> yeah. Glad, I was glad that people got that. That was just a little joke that we had inside. And, you know, people sometimes barely pay attention to graphics like that. But uh, I was pleasantly surprised to see that that took hold. Last question. What can we expect in the coming shows? I, I... You know, this week you're going to see that that Kobe story we talked about. The uh, there's two timelines here. There's the 97-98 season, so we're getting close to the playoffs. Uh, by the end of, of episode six, we're going to be headed for the playoffs in that 97-98 season. And then the other timeline is the evolution of that dynasty. So you're going to see that the the uh, the back-to-back -back championships and the famous shrug game that Michael had against the Blazers in '92. You're going to see. Um, you're going to see that fame take a toll on him and, and ultimately drive him away from the game for a while. You're going to see um, some tragedy befall him and his family with the death of his dad. And, and then we're also going to learn some more backstories about guys like Tony Kukoc and Steve Kerr and, and um, other players who played a, a huge role on those teams. So 
there's a lot. I, I, I really, uh, one through four is what I was knocking on wood to say, I, I just hope that people can make it through one through four because that's where a lot of our exposition and explanation come. But to me, five through 10 are where the series really comes into its own and takes off. So I'm excited for people to see it. Oh, we made it through. You don't have to worry about that. <laughs> it's good. Thank you so much. Of course. Take care. Thank you so much to director Jason Hare. The Last Dance is airing on ESPN or Netflix, depending on where you're watching from. It's two episodes every Sunday or Monday. And thank you so much for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. Please, if you have a moment, rate and review the show. It really helps others to find us. And please support the work by becoming a monthly or yearly member of Pop Culture Confidential Premium. We'll get extra bonuses and goodies and all that stuff. You'll find that at popcultureconfidential.supportingcast.fm. Thanks so much and see you next time. Hello and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. It's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. (laughs) You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Green.